Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. If you take your Bible or your Bible app and open with me to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, while you're turning there, I want to just welcome you to Bible Center. If you're new with us today, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, For those of you who are here in person, for those of you who are joining us online or maybe on TV, thank you for tuning in. I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I would love to meet you soon. And I also want to give a shout out to our Bible Center family for being so faithful uh, week after week. However you consume, however you participate in these services, I thank you for being with us today. Today we continue a series entitled Overwhelmed, and we're looking at what what it's like to be overwhelmed with God or the deep, deep, rich truths of God in the Scriptures. Last week we, we saw how we can agree to disagree agreeably and how this picture of unity is this huge image, this huge view of unity in the church that Jesus invites us to. Today we're looking at why we can believe the Bible, why I believe the Bible at Bible Center, and so I'm excited to talk about uh, today's message. But then we're also going to look next week at why the Trinity is so important, why the Trinity is so important. And then after that, for the following three weeks, we're going to see what it looks like to know and love God the Father, what it looks like to know and love God the Son, and what it looks like to know and love God the Holy Spirit. But today I want to start with telling you a story about something that miraculous that happened to me uh, when I was 14. So I'm 40 now, you can do the math. But a long, long time ago, I was in uh, Gatlinburg for a youth conference and God did something miraculous in my heart uh, that I want to share with you. Our youth pastor, our high school pastor, invited me to come along with some of the older guys in the youth group for the Smoky Mountain Youth Conference, and I was excited to hang out with some of the guys. I remember I wanted to hang out with a guy named Bubba. He looked nothing like a Bubba, but his name was Bubba. I wanted to hang out with a guy named Keith and be like the older dudes. But I was also excited as a 14-year-old boy with, with, other than food on my mind, looking for girls, right? That's why you go to a youth conference whenever you're in high school. And so I remember, you know, even like I was excited to go to Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum to look for girls. I was excited to go play putt-putt to look for girls. But the conference was held uh, there in Gatlinburg at the Gatlinburg Convention Center. But here's the hotel where the breakout sessions were held. And I can remember the day that my high school pastor invited me to come in and he said, hey, I want you to sit with me through a specific session on why the Bible is trustworthy, why you can believe the Word of God. And so, of course, I went in there like any other 14-year-old thinking that maybe I'll hear something. I'll try not to fall asleep. But I remember that session. Even though I might have gone in thinking about girls, I came out of that session as a 14-year-old boy thinking about God. The lesson that day was so real. It's part of my core memories. I I remember so many of the points that the, the pastor gave about how and why we can believe God's word. I don't have those notes, but I believe that much of what I do today and much of what we're doing at Bible Center is the result of God speaking to me that day about why the Bible is so trustworthy. Today, I want to speak a message entitled, Why We Believe the Bible at Bible Center. 
why we believe the Bible at Bible Center. Now, I realize today I'm speaking to different kinds of people. Maybe I'm speaking to someone and you've been a Christian for a long time. And so maybe you're thinking, well, I already believe the Bible. Why do I need this message? Well, I hope you'll take notes. That way you can share some of what you learn uh, with somebody else. I found that the Lord usually gives us right when we need when we need it. And so there's somebody perhaps that God's going to bring across your path uh, that you'll be able to share why the Word of God is truly from God. Uh, I believe I'm also speaking to someone who, who maybe you're skeptical about this religion thing. You were skeptical all about the Bible Well, I don't believe that in one message or in a thousand messages that I'm going to be able to convince you of anything. And so I'm not going to try to convince you of anything with my words, but I would ask you to keep an open mind. I really believe what I'm talking about today. And so I'm praying that God uses it in your life uh, just like he's used it in my life. What I have to say also is helpful for those who are hurting. You say, how is a message about the Bible helpful for those who are hurting? Certainly, you would preach a message about how to heal through your hurt and your pain. But actually, what I've found through my pain is that Satan often questions my love for the Bible the most when my heart is hurting the most. And so when our hearts are hurting, sometimes we wonder, can I really believe the promise that all things work together for good? Can I really believe the promise that God is always with me? And so if that's you, if you're hurting, I believe this message is going to help you for all the other promises that you need to believe. And so today I want to speak again a message, why we believe the Bible at Bible Center. Let's jump ahead to number one, why do we believe the Bible Well, number one, it claims to be God's inspired word, so it can't be just another book. It claims to be God's inspired word, so it can't be just another book. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. The first part of that verse says, all scripture is God-breathed. I love that particular translation. Every part of the Bible is literally breathed out from the heart of God. We find over in 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 19, Peter writes, "We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning rises in your hearts." It claims to be God's inspired words. Therefore, it can't be just another book. Now, to be fair, this alone isn't enough for us to believe the Bible, or for most, it's not enough to believe the Bible. I could write a book, and I could say that it is the words of God. You need to read it, but that doesn't mean it's the words of God just because I wrote it and claim it to be. But all I'm doing with this point is I'm trying to remove the middle ground. And so all I'm trying to say is either the Bible is the inspired word of God or the Bible is the biggest book of lies that's ever hit planet earth. All I'm trying to do is to show that there is no in-between. The Old Testament alone states over 5,000 times, thus saith the Lord. Over 2,600 times, the Old Testament claims to be the very word of God. 
there are at least 320 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and the New Testament writers refer to the Old Testament some 1,000 times. And so in my heart, I'm asking you to make the decision. Either the Bible is what it claims to be, the inspired word of God, or it's not. It's not even a good book. It's a book of lies. There can be no in-between. So we start there with number one. It claims to be God's inspired word. It can't be just another book. Let's look at number two. Why do we believe the Bible? Well, number two, it never contradicts itself and it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. It doesn't contradict itself and it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. Now think about how the Bibles was put together. The way the Bible came together was truly miraculous. There were some 40 writers who produced the Bible over a period of 1,500 years. They lived in separate times and in, and in various continents and had no real opportunity to collaborate except for just a handful of those. Some were well-educated, but some were farmers, shepherds, soldiers, fishermen, and so forth. And yet over this period of 1,500 years, it fits together like a hand in a glove, never contradicting itself, never affirming anything contrary to fact. In the book of Numbers, we find that Moses writes this, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? In the Psalms, the psalmist said, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Proverbs 30 in verse five says, every word of God is flawless. And so what I wanna draw to our attention today is the simple fact that you've got this book that's miraculously put together without one contradiction. Now I've sat in uh, the same, some of the same classrooms that you've sat in. And I remember one particular professor making a comment, something from the Old Testament about how that there was an obvious error because a certain battle was mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And his argument went something like this. In one particular place in the Old Testament, it says, for instance, that there were 3,992 soldiers. And then in another place in the New Testament, it says there were 4,000 soldiers. So obviously, there's a contradiction in the word of God. But if you think about it, that's the way we talk all the time. God's word wasn't written in an alien language. God's word was written in the language of the people at that time and translated into the language of our time. And so God is simply communicating in the way we communicate. If you wanna say that there was 3,992 soldiers in one battle, or you wanna say that there were about 4,000 in that battle, you're saying the same thing. That's not a contradiction in the word of God. One thing that really helped me have confidence in God's word was when I, I saw this. The Bible is scientifically accurate whenever it intends to speak scientifically. So for those of you scientists out there who, who think this way, I hope you'll be encouraged by this. Many centuries before Galileo claimed that the earth was round, the Bible in Isaiah 40, verse 22, claimed that the earth was round. 
Matthew Maury is considered to be the, the father of oceanography. Interesting how he became the father of oceanography. As he was bedridden with a serious illness, he asked his son to read to him the Bible. And his son went to the book of Psalms and began to read through the Psalms. And when he came to Psalm, chapter, Psalm 8, verse 8, Maury noticed the expression about the paths of the seas. Upon his recovery, he went looking for these paths and he discovered the continental currents. And his book on oceanography continues to be used in classrooms today. A Roman engineer named Marcus Vitruvius discovered the hydraulic water cycle in 30 BC. Yet this truth was fully revealed to mankind in 1600 or so BC when the Bible says this in Ecclesiastes 1.7, the rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows into the sea. Even the earth's gravitational field is mentioned in scripture, Job 26 and verse seven. So the Bible is scientifically accurate whenever it intends to speak scientifically. Now there are places, this often comes up in the list of contradictions, there are places where the Bible doesn't intend to speak scientifically. The Bible is not a science textbook. There are some places where the Bible is speaking poetically in songs. The Bible is speaking in stories. The Bible is speaking in illustrations. But when the Bible intends to speak scientifically, it speaks accurately. But not only scientifically, but the Bible also is historically accurate whenever it intends to speak historically. It's historically accurate whenever it intends to speak historically. For years, this one got me this week, for years, historians believed the Bible was inaccurate because they believed that King David was a fictional character. They thought we can't find his name anywhere outside of the Hebrew scriptures, therefore King David didn't exist. But when they uncovered the Assyrian libraries, they found in the Assyrian libraries on all these tablets, references to the house of David and even to David himself. In the last hundred years, they've actually uncovered the palace of King David there in Jerusalem in the old city. It was a joy just a few months ago or earlier this year before, right before the pandemic to, to sit and stand and walk through the very palace of King David. There's one particular tower that they found that's still half standing, they found buried in the mud. And who knows, that may have been the very tower that he looked out over the enemies of Israel. It is moving to be there and to know that every archeological discovery only proves the validity of the word of God. On another instance, one of the most documented events in the Old Testament is the flood. We call it Noah's flood, Genesis six through nine. Discoveries indicate that a number of ancient documents from around the world tell stories of the same flood. In the Sumerian record, for instance, there's a list of kings that reigned for a long, long time. And then there's this story of a flood. And after the flood, there were kings who reigned for very, very short time periods. It was like their lifespan was cut short. Well, this follows the same exact pattern in the Bible because we find in the Bible that after the flood, for whatever reason, I'll let you scientists explain it, but whatever happened in the world during and after the flood 
calls men and women to live much shorter lifespans. And so what a beautiful thing is pictured even in our archaeology. In the 11th tablet of Gilgamesh, in Gilgamesh's epic, it speaks of an ark, animals taken on an ark, birds sent out because of the, a flood, the ark landing on a mountain, and the sacrifice offered after the ark landed. The Hittites were once thought to be a, a made-up pe people in the Bible. People said there's no way the Hittites were real until they actually discovered the Hittite capital in Bogoskoy, Turkey, if I'm saying that right. It was once claimed that there was no Assyrian king named Sargon. Sargon is found in several places in the scriptures in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah chapter 20 and verse 1. His name didn't show up anywhere else in the Bible, and so historians said Sargon didn't it really exist until his palace was discovered in Iraq, and the very event that Isaiah chapter 20 mentions, the capture of Ashdod, was painted and described on the palace walls. You see, it was things like this. We could go on and on with how history proves the validity of the Bible. And, and sometimes I go on way too much about it. Uh, my friends, my comrades, my fellow pastors and, and shepherds, they tease me about how many times I use maps and talk about history. And so I'm trying to watch that. But one of the reasons I do that is because it was through history that I came to faith. I remember as a kid seeing pictures of actual places where Jesus walked in the Garden of Gethsemane. Actual steps that they had uncovered where Jesus actually taught and preached the word of God. And it was through those pictures that I realized that this isn't Santa Claus. This isn't Easter Bunny. This is real. The Bible is scientifically accurate, historically accurate, but the Bible is also prophetically accurate. All the notes are there in your outline. You can find them again on the homepage at biblecenterchurch.com or on the app. I've listed a number of different prophecies there for you to study on your own. But actually there are 2,500 prophecies scholars believe in the Bible. 2,500 prophecies and 2,000 of them, over 2,000 have already come to pass. The other 500 still remain to be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus the odds that 2,000 prophecies were fulfilled prior to, of course, them being fulfilled, making them prophecies, is a chance less than one in one with 2,000 zeros. The greatest prophecy ever given is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where, where Paul says there was a prophecy that Christ was going to come and die for our sins according to the scriptures that he was going to be buried and that he was going to rise again the third day, according to the scriptures. There are prophecies saying he would be born in Bethlehem. He would go to Egypt as a baby. He would come back and live in Galilee. All these prophecies, some 300 prophecies fulfilled just in the first coming of Jesus alone. And so we can trust the Bible because it is prophetically correct. I wanna speak a word to you students for just a moment. Those of you who are students in middle school or high school or college or even post-grad, I wanna invite you, if you ever come across a, a question in a classroom that you can't answer, I wanna ask you to reach out. Not that I have the answers by any means, but I know where to find the answers. 
I could recommend a book to you or a website or uh, some research on that particular question. I would love to help arm you not to walk around campus and just convincing everyone of some truth that you know, but so that you personally can be confident that when Jesus speaks, his words come to pass. It never contradicts itself and it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. Number three, why do we believe the Bible? Why believe the Bible? Well, because when it's properly interpreted and applied, it has transformed lives for millennia. When it's properly interpreted and applied, it has transformed lives for millennia. I can't overstress, I can't overstate how important it is that we get the first part right, properly interpreted. You see, there are a number of instances where the Bible hasn't been properly interpreted and it's been used as a weapon against God's people against God's kingdom, not for God's kingdom. Uh, one example I can think of is some of the crusades. If you're sitting in a classroom, someone may bring up, an atheist or an agnostic may ask you, what about the crusades? When in the name of Jesus, with a big red cross on their shield, uh, there were people killed, held at sword's point and murdered because they weren't, wouldn't convert to the Christian faith. What do we do with that? What we do with that is we say people in the New Covenant era were misinterpreting some Old Testament passage. Hitler himself used the Old Testament to validate, ironically, some of the things he did. Uh, slaveholders would use certain portions of the Old Testament to validate their atrocities. And so even though those are the extreme examples, we need to be careful in the New Testament era, because we are in the New Testament era, we live after Jesus, not to use the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, specifically not to use the Mosaic law as our practical guidelines for everyday living unless they're repeated in the New Testament. So there's laws like thou shalt not kill. In other words, thou shalt not murder. Well, that's repeated in the New Testament. Don't steal as in the Old Covenant. That's also repeated in the New Covenant. But there are a lot of commands where here, and I'm from West Virginia, I'm from this, I was born in Charleston, raised here in the Kanawha Valley. There's a number of movements that still exist in our region where people get really funky with the Bible. Just be very, very careful that you're not picking and choosing verses from the Mosaic law to prove your point. For instance, I've heard people in our area say why uh, it's sinful for a woman to wear anything but a dress. A woman shouldn't wear jeans, shouldn't wear pants under any circumstance. Well, I know some women who just prefer that. They enjoy that. That's totally fine. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about actually using a, a verse that says women shouldn't wear what pertains to a man and then somehow trying to legislate righteousness that no woman should ever wear pants. Well, next time someone asks you that, just point them over a few verses away where in that same chapter, God says that you shouldn't eat bacon. And so if, if someone's gonna tell you that a woman shouldn't do this or that, just say, well, if that's fine, you shouldn't eat bacon or you shouldn't shave your beard. We can't pick and choose. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. We derive our principles from Jesus and the New Testament. But when we use the Bible correctly, when we dive in to see what it really means to love God and love our neighbor, 
And the rest of the New Testament double clicks on those two commands, love God, love your neighbor. That really is the whole New Testament. When we double click on those two commands, all of a sudden there's a sense of freedom. There's a sense of joy because the Bible actually gives life. It transforms our lives. I'm in a discipleship group and a group of us today were at the mall. We, we hang out at the mall sometimes and on the, in the food court and we were studying God's word together. And as we're going verse by verse through Psalm 19, these verses jumped out. And so I just had to share them uh, in the message today. Psalm 19, seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, yea, even than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. And in keeping of them, there is great reward. Number four, why do we believe the Bible? Well, we believe the Bible, number four, because Jesus embodied it and approved it and is at the center of its storyline. We believe the Bible because Jesus embodied it, he approved it, he's at the center of its storyline. What do we mean by Jesus embodied it? Jesus didn't embody a book, Jesus didn't become a book. And that's where we're reminded that the word of God is more than a book. The word of God isn't the, the leather that I have on my Bible and it's not the paper on which the words are printed. That's not the Bible, that's not the word of God. The word of God are the very words themselves. And we find that the word became flesh. It says in John chapter one, John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, all the revelation of God was made evident for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus embodied the revelation of God. If you wanna say, what is God like? Just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at Jesus, you'll learn what God is like. He embodied it, but he also approved it. Jesus didn't say, well, now that I'm here, you don't need the word. No, he actually approved it. He encourages us to read the word of God. We see it in Matthew chapter five, verse 17. Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. In other words, I haven't come to get rid of them. Don't cut them out of your Bible. No, leave them in your Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In other words, every page of our Bible points us back somehow to Jesus. Every page 
from Genesis to Revelation. You know, the Bible starts in Genesis chapter three with this picture of Jesus. Uh, God talks to the serpent, uh, the, somehow the, the personification of Satan himself. And he says to Satan, he says, you're one day, I'm gonna, gonna send through a woman a seed that's going to crush your head, Satan. This seed in Genesis 3.15, oh, you'll, you'll crush his heel, you'll bite his heel, but this seed is going to crush your head. You say, what in the world is that? That's, that's prophetic language. God is saying, I'm going to send Jesus, Satan, and he is going to crush you once and for all. That's how the Bible starts. How does the Bible end? Revelation chapter 21 and verse three, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In context, this is Jesus. We know this is Jesus. And then he said, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. You say, Pastor Matt, what is the Bible about? A safe answer. There's, there's deeper answers, but the safe answer is that the Bible is about Jesus. It's all about the storyline of Christ. Jesus embodied it, he approved it, and he, he is the center of its storyline. But number five, and lastly, why do we believe the Bible at Bible Center? Why can you trust the Bible where you are, in your life, at your work, in your family, in your trials? Why can you trust the Bible? Well, number five, because the Holy Spirit opens hearts and convinces us it is true. This is one of those spiritual aspects of the Bible. The Bible is, does it, does it speak to our minds? Sure, but the Bible is a spiritual book. And we find in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. We find over in Luke chapter 24 and verse 30, 45, that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This week I was reading the biography of Billy Graham and Billy Graham talked about how there was a place in his life when he, was, he wasn't quite sure that the Bible was the word of God. And in his biography, he goes on to say, so what I did, I asked the Holy Spirit to offer, I admitted all the parts where I doubted and asked the Holy Spirit to make them plain. He said it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen all at once. But the Lord began to use his word by his spirit to convince me every single word of it is true. That's what I pray for you. I pray that the spirit opens your heart and convinces you it is true, first of all, if you're not yet a believer, but also for you every single day, for me every day. As we open up the Bible, God thaws our hearts out again with my hot cup of coffee in my hand falling out my body each morning. I want the word of God to fall out my heart. Here's what I want you to do. Here's the takeaway. It's longer than normal, but I, I really want us to grasp this. And so I'll, I'll say it a couple times. By faith, 
let's commit to always being Bible-centered at Bible Center. Looking to the Bible alone as our final source of authority above all our systems and standards, preferences and persuasions, traditions and teachers. Notice I didn't say we shouldn't have teachers or should have traditions. It's just that we need to make sure and that we're committed to placing the Bible above all of these things. You probably wondered why in the world does he have all these books? Is he gonna read all these books to us? No, I, what I wanna do is take just a, a second before we pray and let's look at different, different ways that we can use the words of men and women to wrongly be above the authority of the Bible. So I've got the church constitution. Bible Center, we've been around for 77 years. Churches, because we're an organization, we're not, we're a church, an organism, but we're also an organization. We have to have rules and laws and all those sorts of things. Just, hey, how are we going to govern ourselves? Any organization does that. Thankfully, ours isn't very thick. But if we're not careful, we can put our church constitution above the Bible. And so what I want to encourage you to do is, yes, thank God for this. But as we walk through our, especially our membership statement of faith, let's remember that the Bible is above the word of God. I've got a book, America's God and Country by William Federer. There's a lot of good in this book. I'm thankful to have been born in the United States of America. I'm thankful to be the grandson of a World War II vet. I'm thankful for all of those things. But let's be careful in this season, especially this political season, not to put God in our country above the Bible, but to make sure that the Bible is above our country, above our political views, above our, our persuasions. The Bible is more important. I have a book on God, marriage, and family. It's a good book. There's a lot of good in this book about God, marriage, and family. But there's also a lot of opinions. And if I go to this book on God, marriage, and family, and I start reading things that are somebody's opinion that doesn't line up with the word of God, and I start believing it more than I believe the Bible, I'm gonna create problems with God, marriage, and family. And so I'm encouraging you not that I don't want you to read. Of all people, you know I want you to read, but instead let's read with the Bible over top. I got a book here on 40 questions about creation and evolution. It's a great book. It, it explores all the different viewpoints from the Christian perspective. I would encourage you to, to read and study all these controversial issues, especially if you have students in your life, as you disciple your students. But we have to be careful when we read books like this, that we don't take the opinions of men and women above the Bible, but instead we put the Bible above the opinions of men and women. I saved this one for almost last. Tim LaHaye's book, Left Behind. Good book, exciting book, a lot of good in the book. But can we remember that this isn't the Bible? It's a good book, but it's fiction. This book is above that. And I did save this one for last. This is the biggest book of all. I'm gonna need two hands to hold it up. I keep this in my office. It's called The Big Book of Preferences. That really isn't what this book is, but I've labeled it the big book of preferences. Have you noticed how often our preferences and opinions are almost, it's the biggest thing about us, much bigger than just about anything else. And even if we're not held captive by all of these books, 
Most of us are tempted to be held captive by this one. Look how thick it is. Look how old it is. A lot of tradition in there. I just want to encourage us. Don't throw out your tradition. Not yet. But make sure that you're viewing your traditions and your preferences and opinions through the lens of God's word and that you're not trying to force them into God's word. By faith, let's commit to always being Bible-centered at Bible Center, looking to the Bible alone as our final source of authority. Above all our systems, above all our standards, above all of our preferences and persuasions, traditions and teachers. Why we do that? Because we are convinced it's true. Go live the Bible. Go love the Bible. Hold dear to the Bible. And let's always be Bible-centered at Bible Center. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.